Coming up on today's show, Queen Elizabeth II has died at the age of 96, the longest reigning British monarch. Our politics have become a live wire, and they've become a live wire for a reason. We'll find out what that reason is. And Ottawa's emission targets for fertilizer use are unrealistic. That's according to an industry report. Well, the signs were there all morning, and uh, it has now been confirmed. The royal family putting out a tweet three minutes ago. It reads simply, The Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. The King and the Queen Consort will remain at Balmoral this evening and will return to London tomorrow. Uh, The royal family has been rushing to Balmoral Castle throughout the day. Queen Elizabeth has died at the age of 96, the longest-serving monarch. Um... On Earth, uh, she took over the throne in 1952, 70 years. She's actually been uh, the monarch and, of course, head of state, not only for the UK and the Commonwealth, but Canada as well. Um, here's a look back at her remarkable life. Queen Elizabeth dead at the age of 96. In an ever-changing world, she was a rock of stability. Queen Elizabeth II famously said she had to be seen to be believed. For her Diamond Jubilee, millions came to see Britain's oldest, longest reigning, and most beloved monarch. She's probably the most famous woman in the world, probably the most admired woman in the world. This is the first monarch who's reigned through a modern media age, who's reigned through so much social change. From the Cold War, through the jet age, the space age, the digital age, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, I mean, you name it, she has seen pretty much the 20th century at first hand. Her reign was as long as it was unexpected. Born Elizabeth Alexandra Mary on April 21st, 1926, she was still a child when her uncle, King Edward VIII, abdicated the throne. Suddenly, Elizabeth's father was king and she was next in line. The young princess made this promise. I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, She'll be devoted to your service. She made that speech when she was 21, saying that uh, however long her life was, she would uh, devote it to her country and to the Commonwealth, and she stuck to it. And I think that's why people admire her, because she really has stuck to her word. That devotion to duty would be her hallmark. She was a teenager when Europe went to war and begged her father to let her help, first with her wartime radio broadcasts. Thousands of you in this country have had to leave your homes and be separated from your fathers and mothers. My sister, Margaret Rose, and I feel so much for you. And later, joining the services as a driver and mechanic. During the war, she also met her distant cousin, Philip. Serving with the British Royal Navy in the Mediterranean and Pacific, they exchanged letters for seven years. As onto the famous balcony came the bride and bridegroom. Their Westminster Abbey wedding was broadcast over the radio to 200 million people around the world. The newlyweds never expected Princess Elizabeth was about to become queen. But when her father died unexpectedly from a heart attack, the 25-year-old was thrust onto the throne. For the queen, it must have been devastating. She was out in Kenya, no expectation that this news would arrive. And she knew everything would change, her life, her family, and it would be duty from now on. Her coronation was one of the first televised public events. The young queen quickly showed a knack for protecting tradition while embracing change. I very much hope that this new medium will make my Christmas message more personal and direct. 
Her first televised Christmas message in 1957 became an annual tradition. Half a century later, she was still at it, pushing the boundaries with her first tweet and even the occasional photobomb. The rise of technology meant the world was shrinking, and so too was her empire. 25 countries declared independence during her reign. Others loosened their ties, like Canada, signing its constitution in 1982. Her reign spanned 13 British and 12 Canadian prime ministers, from Pierre Trudeau's famous pirouette. A modern history of our nation could be written entirely with vignettes from your life. To Canada's second Prime Minister Trudeau. Thank you, Mr. Prime Minister of Canada, for making me feel so old. <laughs> Her Majesty made 22 trips to Canada, the most of any monarch. This country felt like a home away from home. Always taking time to meet and greet her royal subjects. It was just awesome to look at her cool once-in-a-lifetime chance. Many credit the Queen's personal popularity for the monarchy's survival, but perhaps her lowest point came during the mid-90s, after three of her children divorced and a fire gutted her Windsor Castle home. It has turned out to be an annus horribilis. After the death of Princess Diana, the Queen at first failed to join the public outpouring of grief, but she soon bowed to public pressure, delivering a heartfelt TV address and emerging the elder stateswoman. So what I say to you now, as your Queen and as a grandmother, I say from my heart. And before long, that grandmother became a great-grandmother. To mark the Queen's 90th birthday, the palace released this portrait with her two youngest grandchildren and five great-grandchildren, including Princess Charlotte, who later made her Buckingham balcony debut, with her big brother George practicing his royal wave. Longtime royal watchers say they'd never seen the Queen look so pleased. All the effort she's put in over the decades has paid off, and the future looks assured. Her Majesty's legacy lives on, but this place certainly won't be the same without her. Jeff Semple, Global News, London. Jeff Semple with a look back at the remarkable life of Queen Elizabeth II, the longest reigning monarch in British history, Canada's head of state. The Queen, 96 years of age, died today at her Scottish residence, Balmoral Castle. Several members of the royal family were at her bedside, including Charles, who of course now ascends to the throne, becoming King Charles. Royal family made the announcement in a Twitter post just moments ago saying the Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. The King and the Queen Consort will remain at Balmoral this evening and return to London tomorrow. Um, the well-known protocol that has been in place for a number of years for this inevitable outcome is pretty well known. It's called Operation London Bridge. It's detailed as to what happens when the Queen passes, and there's an entire framework of broadcasters and government officials and how the news is shared and how the news is spread, and uh, it's all now into effect. Um, today is, of course, now 10 days prior to the funeral. We know the funeral will take place 10 days from now, which is known as D-Day plus 10. And uh, in the ensuing days in between now and then, there are a number of things that must take place, um, including her coffin being returned to Buckingham Palace by D-Day plus two. 
Uh, it'll be put in the throne room with an altar, the Paul, the Royal Standard, and four guards standing watch. On the fifth day, there'll be a procession through London, taking her coffin from Buckingham Palace to the Palace of Westminster, with a service there following its arrival. She'll lie in state there for three days with her coffin on a raised box in the middle of Westminster Hall that will be open to the public for 23 hours a day. And then ultimately the funeral taking place 10 days from now. So um, there will be a tremendous amount of tradition and ceremony and um, quite a time. 96 years of age, longest serving monarch in British history. We're going to take a quick break. We'll continue with our special coverage. Queen Elizabeth II passing away at the age of 96. Breaking news today, the longest reigning monarch in British history, Queen Elizabeth II, has died at the age of 96. The royal family confirming that news uh, just moments ago. She died at Balmoral Castle in Scotland, Um, members of the royal family at her side. Uh, Buckingham Palace took the rare step of issuing a notice that her Queen's doctors were concerned about her health. That happened uh, several hours ago, earlier this morning, and... um, at that point, we started to receive word that members of the royal family were making their way to Balmoral Castle. And uh, just moments ago, about 20 minutes ago or so, it was confirmed that Queen Elizabeth II has died at the age of 96. Uh, for some reaction and some perspective, we're going to chat now with Keith Roy, who is the regional coordinator for Western Canada of the Monarchist League of Canada. Keith, thank you for joining us. And I, I guess condolences are in order, correct? Uh, condolences to the whole nation, Shay. Um, this is, I was actually sitting, um, waiting to come on with you when the, I saw the tweet come out from Buckingham Palace that Her Majesty had passed away. Um, you know, in, incredible moment for Canada. Um, that is a life well lived that we should all aspire to. I mean, when you think back, Keith, uh, what her reign encompassed, going back to 1952, just, you know, all the ch- everything that she presided over, it's absolutely remarkable. Yeah, you, you played a clip earlier of uh, the, the current Prime Minister Trudeau who said, you know, Canada's history could be done in a, a series of vignettes of the Queen's life. Yeah. Um, it, she, she truly has been the personification of Canada for so long. And the, the reason we have the country we have is because of our form of government. Uh, it, the, that constitutional monarchy of which uh, the queen was the personification and now the king is the personification uh, is really the main differentiator between us and the American system. And it's why I believe uh, our country's better and, and our quality of life overall is better. You know, Keith, when you take a look at... Um all the things she's gone through. I think for a lot of us, uh, certainly of my age, it all sorts to kick in, let's say 1980, somewhere around there. And there was a there was a marked change in the royal family. And we know it turned into something of a soap opera at times in the years after that and all of the drama and the intrigue. But it seems to me like the Queen, well, various members of the family have had their drama and, um, you know, they've fallen out of favor and come back into favor. She seemed to be above all of that. And throughout it all, she's been widely respected. The Queen was the world's most enduring celebrity. At a time when celebrities let us down through their behaviors, their actions, their words. Celebrities come and go. 
the queen has remained steadfast in her duty to her subjects, to the nations of which she was the head of state. Um, she was uh, she was modern. She was forward thinking. She was rooted and grounded. Um, you know, if if we all strive to live a life uh, as uh, uh, of such high caliber as the queen have lived, uh, I think the world would be a much better place. Um, can you sum up? 70 years as uh, a monarch and a head of state, it's almost impossible. But what what stands out as sort of this will be the lasting legacy of Queen Elizabeth II? Uh, duty. Uh, a sense of obligation to her work, uh, to the people she led, the nations she served. Um, uh, to me, the word duty personifies the queen. Um, where do we go from here? Uh, what's... You know, we know that uh, formerly Prince Charles, now King Charles, uh, will be ascending yeah. to the throne. Uh, what's your anticipation of where we go from here in terms of uh, the monarchy? You know, King King Charles was the world's longest-serving monarch in waiting until a few moments ago when he uh, acceded to the throne. And uh, no, nobody is better prepared for that role. He has literally spent his entire life preparing for that role. He has had uh, the best model of which to watch um, so that he could be prepared for that role. Uh, the, the actual transition, the, the governmental transition, the technical side of it is um, well documented. There are binders of protocol governing what's going to happen, um, not only uh, with respect to uh, the Queen's coffin and the transition, but every country, uh, every province, uh, even the municipalities have all this ready to go. And so the transition will be seamless. Canadians will continue to enjoy the rights and freedoms and the constitutional monarch, uh, constitutional monarchy, uh, sovereign form of government that we've enjoyed for so many years. Um, King Charles will accede to the throne. And, you know, the, the best way that we as Canadians can honor the Queen uh, is uh, to uh, give our loyalty to her heir, which is what she wanted. She wants this institution to continue. She spent her whole life building and supporting the institution for our benefit. And the best way for us to honor her is to um, give loyalty to her heir. Uh, the, the queen is dead. Long live the king. Um, as you said, her sense of duty and the stoicism and um, just the, the stability, the anchor through all of it uh, has been the royal family. Um, do you anticipate big change under King Charles? Will he continue to be that strong, somewhat silent presence that we just knew was there? Um, or do you think he'll he'll change the direction of the royal family? Uh, he will continue in the same tradition that his mother did, I would imagine. Um, he will have his own interests, as he always has. Uh, but the the Queen provided a level of um, a level of advice to her prime ministers, Canadian, British, and and otherwise, um, behind the scenes, and Charles will continue to do that. Charles, Charles has been trained by his mother. He's informed. He knows how this works. He knows where his role is, and and he'll be able to provide a unique insight. He's a global figure as well. He has a very interesting mm -hmm. global perspective that he'll be able to offer the uh, certainly the UK prime ministers in in weekly visits as well as Canadian and other Prime Ministers um, when they seek advice, and, and he's entitled to provide that advice under our system of government. There is so much protocol uh, that goes into an event such as this. What happens in Canada? I mean, what can you tell us about what we can expect to see in our country being a member of the Commonwealth over the next two weeks? 
Um, it, it will in many ways mirror the activities going on uh, in the United Kingdom uh, in terms of how I, I suspect Parliament will will be recalled in some fashion. Um, uh, for the matter, uh, obviously, the, the flags that are, have been re-raised will be lowered again mm-hmm. um, uh, at, at various times on, on different time zones. And there will be, um, I know some of the provinces have uh, some plans in place for large public gatherings for Canadians to go and do their mourning. I, I I've I've been privy to some conversations with the Alberta government, and I know that they're planning on having something uh, either on the legislature grounds or uh, possibly inside a large venue um, where Canadians can go and um, mourn together, pay their respects, and and join um, in a in a time of of joy and sorrow uh, where uh, no, no one dies suddenly in their nineties. No, so, no. This is not an unexpected event. It's sad, um, but at the same time, it's it's an incredible celebration of a like a, just a just an hey, this is an unbelievable life. Um, it was long. It was meaningful. It was impactful. Uh, it's it's everything that any of us could ever hope for. And and to pass peacefully at at her vacation home with her family near her side, um, I I can't imagine a better ending uh, than than what just happened. You're right. I mean, it is truly, it is absolutely remarkable, Keith. I mean, like for me, I'm 50 years old. I've never known another monarch or a head of state, and and so many people haven't. I mean, you'd have to be more than 70 years old to have any recollection of any king or queen other than Queen Elizabeth. She's just been eternal, really, for all of us. Yeah, it it really is the fab. You know, the the queen is the personification of the social fabric of Canada. Um, it's it's really quite amazing. Uh, how embedded she is in Canadian culture. And at times like this, when, you know, we got word out of the palace earlier today that, you know, doctors were concerned, um, I, I think people realized very quickly how precious she was and and how important she was. And I think the the outpouring we'll see from Canadians over the next few days will reinforce uh, the belief Canadians have in the monarchy and its continued strength as a as a system of government for Canada, um, and and we'll you know we have the benefit of stability. We get mm-hmm. to continue on. Char- Charles is king. William will be king. George will be king. We know what's coming next. Our system is secure. Uh, the American system fragile at best these days, and and we we enjoy uh, we enjoy a different um, a different structure here. Keith, I, I really appreciate you joining us and uh, bringing us your perspective. Thank you so much. discussion here about why that is the theme and the tone of politics um, across North America, around the world, in fact, um, more controversial issues than anything else, screaming right to the front of the pack and staying in the headlines and dominating everything. I mean, just take a look at what's happening in the leadership race here in Alberta with the Alberta Sovereignty Act. That's all this campaign has been focused on. Controversial? You bet it is. Um, within the party, without outside of the party, you name it. Why does this happen, and why is it happening so much in politics right now? Uh, to walk us through that, joining us, we have Mitch Heimpel, who is the Director of Campaigns and Government Relations for Enterprise Canada. Mitch? You see, hear this there, what's happening? 
Sarah's going to get Mitch on the air. I'm, I'm banging away on the phone here, and it, it won't work. Mitch, hi. How are you? Thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Hey, good to be with you. Okay, so uh, a great piece uh, on the conversation that you wrote, um, talking about uh, this whole concept of controversy in politics and why we're seeing it so much right now. Uh, give us um, the Coles notes on um, stray voltage and what it means. And where, I'm sorry, it's on Substack, not on conversation. I apologize. Um, stray voltage, the concept, where it comes from, and what it means in political terms. So it, it was coined in 2012 by Barack Obama's senior advisor, David Plouffe. And the, the basic theory was that you could say something quite controversial and you would essentially create immersive controversy. So you would get covered for what you said. You would get covered for the factual or fact-based analysis, fact-checking, as we've come to call it, of what you said. And then all of those things would subsequently be covered. And you'd be immersed in a story or a controversy for a number of days. But the success of it would be that it would motivate and and sort of tribalize your electorate, right? right. So you, you would end up taking the people who are inclined to support you on a given matter. And, and the example I use from the Obama administration in the piece is that you didn't build that. Uh, line from the 2012 uh, presidential election. Um, and it would just, it would instantly sort of polarize and mobilize the electorate. And it works. Historically, I mean, it, it generates, when you can generate a controversy, you can, as you say, you generate interest, you generate energy, you you mobilize your supporters. Well, and this is the thing, if you, and this is, the, the, so social media is a great platform for this because it allows these things to perpetuate. It allows them to, to feel like you're constantly immersed in the news cycle and new developments arise and people comment and then people comment on comments and things of this nature. But what it, it does that's very effective is because it, 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 it makes the controversy sort of inescapable to people, they have to form an opinion on it. And it therefore is very good at reaching voters who don't traditionally vote. Okay. Um, this can be used positively and negatively if you want to look at an example of sort of i guess it depends on your perspective um but sort of non-antagonistic stray voltage uh barack obama's endorsement of justin trudeau in the 2019 federal election campaign that was done entirely as a social media voter identification um exercise by the liberals it was very successful in that way and what the liberals have done here in, federally is figured out a way to use events like that to organically and mimetically sort of identify voters online and keep them mobilized. It's been very successful. But, I mean, ultimately you're building the monster that can come back and kill you, right? I mean, that's the thing. It, you can stoke that fire to the point that it's out of control and the controversy overtakes you. Oh, it will. Like, that. that is, that is the end sort of result of it, and we're seeing that in the United States right now. What, what starts out is a debate over policy, right? And, and that policy can be, like, it can be controversial things like we've seen in the past out west with bills C-69, C-48. Um, it can be gun control, which always becomes a hot-button issue both in Canada and the United States. Eventually evolves, and we sort of saw this, uh, and we have seen this over the course of the last year in the United States, into sort of a civilizational conflict. Right, where people yeah. view themselves as, as willing to accept anything from their own side because they have to beat the other the other party, the other team in order to save civilization. Um, and that raises the stakes, raises the temperature, increases the polarization, 
and then frankly increases the likelihood of violence in the political landscape. And, and the thing is, as you say, I mean, politicians do it because it works. It, it mobilizes and it really energizes um, their supporters, and it also puts them into a camp where they're on board no matter what happens. But it really, we all suffer because. It, it takes politics to, frankly, a really dumb place. I mean, tribalism is its just dumb. It benefits the politicians, but it doesn't benefit us. Well, so it, it, you want to you be careful with, with, with how we, we sort of – any tool can be used for any purpose, right? So I think there's a tendency in our, in our political landscape to talk about sort of anything that diverges from what we understand to be the status quo mm-hmm. to be dangerous. And that's not necessarily the case. If you wanted to, for example, um, open up the, the airline markets, we saw the problems with the, with the airports earlier this year, um, so that you could have more international carriers doing Canada-to-Canada destination flights, that would be a remarkable change from our status quo. And it would be controversial in some places, but it wouldn't necessarily be bad. It, it would, so it would be an example of, of this that's actually good. And we've seen this in the, in the federal leadership with, with Pierre Polyev's promise to open up the Toronto Island Airport. Like, you can do this in a policy way that engages people in the conversation, does use language that is a little more adversarial, mm-hmm. um, but isn't necessarily, to your point, sort of demeaning to the electorate. The end result eventually does get there, though. You do eventually end up in these either personality contests or, as I stated before, sort of these broader questions over, like, are like the are are are, are our opponents fundamentally dangerous to the future of the country or, or, or things like this? When it's just not the case, it does ratchet up the temperature in a way that's hard to reverse. So the question stands in instances where it is damaging, where it is harmful. Um, uh, how do we not get into that trap? As we said, the politicians will use it because it works for them. Um, voters, um, it works on them. So, so how does this stop? I mean, how do we get to a point where, okay, um, we're not going to engage in this kind of politics because we know there is a dangerous downside, at least in some cases? Well, we have to stop rewarding people for for intentionally turning the temperature up, right? There, there's a certain degree to which we can't escape and can't and shouldn't excuse awful behavior, right? Um, so if somebody intentionally goes out and provokes a crowd, like the, the way the former president used to do when he would talk about locking up his opponents, that has to be condemned because that's intentionally turning up the temperature, right? And that's intentionally provoking people into a rage. Mm-hmm. But when you've got people that are already, um, and the government, and every government knows this, because every government does extensive internal polling on the mood of the electorate and where they are and whether they view the province or the country, the municipality is on the right track or not. If you know that you're going into a hostile situation, Right. There's a certain like you have to you have a job to do as a politician, but that job isn't to wave a red flag in front of a bull. And so, like, we can go back to the federal election last year. It's the anybody will tell you that it's entirely possible for the the RCMP and, and the Protective Service to, to, to keep the prime minister out of harm's way. You get him in and out of a building. They do advanced searches on this before they go in. They know where every exit in the building is and how to get him out of there in under a minute flat without being seen. But if the prime minister knows in advance, and the RCMP would tell him that he's going to be met with a protest, provoking the protesters should not be something he wants to do. But if you want the image of him having gravel thrown at him because it makes his opponents look ludicrous, 
then it's something our political class is absolutely willing to do, and we've done it. You make a great point. Absolutely, Mitch. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. I wanted to have a conversation about a story that uh, broke this week. Um, an industry-led report has been released as um, a couple of groups have taken a look at Ottawa's proposed targets for fertilizer emission reductions. You know it, it's 30% by 2030. This report was commissioned by Fertilizer Canada and the Canola Council of Canada, taking a look at what that 30% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions from the use of nitrogen-based fertilizers would mean for crop yields, farm finances, all the rest of this stuff. They say uh, it might be possible to do about half of that, 14% reduction in emissions by 2030, but 30%, they say, is, quote, not realistically achievable without imposing significant costs on Canada's crop producers and potentially damaging the financial health of Canada's crop production sector. To get some reaction to this, we are joined now by Tom Steve. Uh, Tom is the general manager of the Alberta Wheat and Barley Commissions. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. And wow, what a busy news day you're dealing with there. Yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely crazy everything that's going on. Uh, Tom, this report from Fertilizer Canada, the Canola Council of Canada, Half the target might be doable, but 30% is unrealistic. Does that fit with your thinking and your analysis of the situation? Absolutely. It um, confirms what we've been saying all along. Uh, this is an arbitrary target that was set you know, somewhere in the uh, bowels of Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada um, with no plan on how to implement it, uh, no idea how the the target actually would be measured. And I would say... If you wanted to write a manual on how not to roll out a government policy and create a backlash from an entire sector, from farmers to industry, this is this is definitely how you would go about it. So pull that apart a bit for me. How much of the frustration is the arbitrary setting of 30% and how much is the way it's being brought up, the way it's being rolled out, as you say, consultation, all of those things, or is it all wrapped into one big bundle of we're unhappy here? Well, uh, first off, uh, there was absolutely zero consultation with farmers, with industry, with the provinces on coming up with that 30% uh, reduction target. Um, that's number one. And then, uh, you know, we've been imploring the government to clarify since then um, what exactly we would be measuring in terms of emissions. And, uh you know, no clear answers on that. And uh, I guess the final part is that, um, you know, if we, uh, we we do go down this road and we ultimately fail, uh, because uh, it's pretty clear that the Fertilizer Canada Canola Council Canada reports uh, concludes that these targets are unachievable, what happens next? That's the question. Um, what's at risk here? What's the danger of going ahead with this 30% target? Well, first of all, uh, as I said earlier, uh, we don't know what we're measuring. Right. So, there's, uh, um, so there is, uh, there's two potential scenarios here. One is intensity of emissions, which was uh, basically have us uh, look at how much fertilizer do you need to use to produce a certain uh, yield per acre, uh, which is, you know, something that 
could be worked with. If we, if we go with the absolute emission reduction model, uh, that's the path they've gone down in Europe, particularly in the Netherlands, and what that will do is ultimately force farmers to reduce fertilizer use um, by up to 30%. That will reduce yields. That will drive up the cost of, uh, of farming, and it will drive up the cost to consumers. So uh, it really is a, a recipe for disaster if we go down the total emissions, absolute emissions right. route, uh, because we won't be competitive. We sell 80% of our wheat, barley, canola, and pulse crops in the international market, and uh, we'll be out of the market. So part of the question here, Tom, is, you know, um, it's it's not, you know, it's not a mandatory, it's a voluntary target at this point. It's not even set. As you say, the consultation wrapped up just at the end of the month. So, um, you know, the government says there are ways of doing this without having to reduce the amount of fertilizer used. We have technology and application practices that can get us to this goal. So is there not some middle ground? Can we not take some strides here without saying, you know, it's all or nothing? Well, um, the first thing I would say is that farmers have been uh, investing in technologies to improve the efficiency of fertilizer use for a very long time mm-hmm. and also adopted practices like uh, minimum tillage uh, that uh, sequesters carbon in the soil and never been properly credited for that. Um, the government is saying it's achievable, but what we have is uh, the, the industry, um, the fertilizer industry, and uh, a major value chain organization, the Canola Council of Canada, looking at it critically and saying, this just isn't doable. Now, the 14% uh, is potentially achievable if we have 100% adoption of a practice known as 4R nutrient stewardship on every farm in Canada. Um, I suppose that might be doable, um, but it's going to require a whole lot of bureaucracy and paperwork and, right. uh, you know, and ultimately, uh, as the study suggests, it's going to cost about $500 million a year to implement. So who's going to pay for that? Farmers operate on very thin margins. And so they look at this as uh, it's going to cost me money. It's going to uh, reduce my yields and make me less competitive. And it's not surprising that in the absence of facts and actual uh, data to support their contentions uh, that farmers got their backs up over this. Yeah, no question they have. Yeah, uh, Tom, thank you so much for the insight. There's so much going on. I'm going to move on, but I do appreciate you joining us. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.